Steve, let me ask you a personal question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do, you have, do you have a mother, Steve? I do indeed. Fantastic. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, well, yes, we all do, but I'm sure you're a good son and you love your mother, don't you, Steve? Uh, the best. I'm like legendary. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very good. Well, I got a tip for you. You can really win Mother's Day. Win your mother over on Mother's Day. Cement your reputation as this really good son. Give your mom an Aura digital picture frame. Have you heard of these things, Steve? Yes, I have. They're loaded up with decades of photos. You can just like hook them up to the phone and then you get the photos running through it, kind of scrolling through it. You seen these things? Yeah, they're great. They're really cool. Yeah, and you can get everything. Uh, and Pictures of your mom, pictures of whoever, your family, your brothers, all, all these things. They're a wonderful item. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code word ChinwagPod at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This is Paul Giamatti speaking. And this is Stephen Asma. And this episode of Chinwag is sponsored by BetterHelp. It is indeed, Steve. Let me ask you a blunt question. Do you ever feel stuck, Steve? <laughs> I'm serious. Do you ever feel kind of stuck in the mud? Every day, my friend. Yeah. Every damn day. And then what happens is you get overwhelmed because you're kind of stuck, right? True. As I get older, and I am getting older, folks, I may not look it. You may <laughs> think, oh, he's like Dorian Gray. He's going backwards. Yeah, wow. He's, <laughs> he's, he's going backwards. I am getting older, folks. It's hard to believe. The thing I notice is how important it is to maintain a balance. You know, I guess you'd call it work life balance. I don't think I'm alone here, but therapies help me do this, this balance. It can help you find equilibrium. It can help you feel more empowered in the decisions you make, the boundaries and priorities you set. It's good in that way. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give better help a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. And all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Sometimes that's hard, right, to find the right person. So this helps. You can change. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with better help. Visit betterhelp.com slash chinwag today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash chinwag. Welcome, everyone, to the Chinwag. I am your co-host, Stephen Asma, and this is Paul Giamatti. Speaking. Nicely done, Steve. Nicely done. Apparently, Kicking Paul is an actor of some kind. And, and so I, <laughs> Can't you tell, you. Steve, from the rich, velvety tones that I have? Yeah, you have this way of like, uh, your mm. voice can like do this deep dive into like a baritone. Sure. It's quite impressive. Sure. It's an Orson and, Welles. Um, it's the touch of Orson Welles in me, Steve. That's sure. why you get, the, you get the tap every once in a while from the great... Uh, Ken Burns, who is, uh, in fact, our guest for today's show, uh, that to do is voices for his, uh, for his documentaries. That is indeed true. Interesting you should say that because he is indeed our, our, our guest today, and I have done voices for him. And I guess it's because I have such a magical, captivating uh, set of pipes on me, isn't it? I think it all our be. fans would agree. That's why they keep <laughs> tuning in, man. They just go into a mesmerizing, like, uh, just it's a hypnotic, blank. Yes, yes. Kind of a limbo. Yes, that's what it is. The, G the Giamatti effect. <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's why they listen, because the Giamatti effect just captures yeah. them and just puts some bug in their brain and they can't stop <laughs> listening. They don't really care what we're saying. That's it's right. Just it, my, it's, it's just my... Red tones. Velvet Cake voice, yeah. <laughs> no, we are very excited about our guest today. He has directed and produced some of the most acclaimed historical documentaries ever made, and he has been honored with dozens of awards for them, including 16 Emmys, two Grammy Awards, and two Oscar nods. Oscar Gold has been on the line twice for Mr. Ken Burns. He is a true auteur, making documentary yeah. films for something like 50 years, Ken Burns. And indeed, He's we amazing. have worked together a few times, and I am a big fan of his. But before we get to that, Steve, so am I. we have some really exciting news. I've had an interesting fact brought to my attention. Are you aware of this? 
Uh, what do you have for me? Well, we've hit a very nice milestone. Do you know what it is, Steve? Uh, I, <laughs> no, please tell me. <laughs> Here it is. With our listeners' help, we now have over 800 4.9-star reviews. Steve. That is fantastic. Astounding. Fantastic. 800, Steve. Our listeners are hearing the good news and spreading the message. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you, listeners, for all the love. It's working, and it's helping this weird little podcast grow. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. There's like um, a funnel always... of weirdness that just comes to us <laughs> at the chinwag. The funnel <laughs> of weirdness. That's basically, that is basically what we're all about. Uh, well, moving on from the funnel of weirdness to the tunnel of love. Indeed. I, that, that, that means nothing. But you I, said I'm it's extremely beautifully. Extremely happy to to spread the love to our next guest. Uh, I, he has been honored with dozens of awards for incredible and moving documentaries like the Civil War, Jazz, yeah. Baseball, the National Parks, the Vietnam War, Country Music. Amazing. Oh, yeah. Big subjects. The guy takes yeah. on big subjects. Uh, PBS has him at over 40 films or something like that. Incredible. His latest is The American Buffalo, which documents the uh, near extinction of the species in the late 19th century. And it's a fascinating and quite beautiful and quite moving movie of his. We're thrilled to have him with us, joining us on the Chinwag. Stephen, I have an alarming bit of trivia for you. This is really, this is, yeah, this is kind of gross. So buckle up. Okay. <laughs> this is this alarmed me. Did you know that traditional bed sheets can harbor more bacteria than a toilet seat, Steve? Come on, that's disturbing. That's disturbing, isn't it? You can get the acne. It can get you the stuffy nose. It can bump up the allergies. It's awful. That's gross. It's gross. I had no idea. Well, Steve, Miracle Made offers a whole line of self-cleaning, eco-friendly bedding, such as sheets, pillowcases, and comforters that prevent 99% of bacteria and requires three times less laundry. I'm telling you, I, I got these sheets. I wake up and I feel a little bit clearer. I feel cleaner already, Steve. I feel clean as a whistle. It's it's not a joke. And that's good. They make the perfect holiday gift. All your friends and family can sleep clean with Miracle. Who doesn't want better sleep and luxurious feeling bed sheets? Go to trymiracle.com slash chinwag to try it today or gift it to someone special this holiday season. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Save over 40%. And if you use our promo chinwag at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product. It's backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't a 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash chinwag and use the code chinwag to claim your free three-piece towel set, Steve, and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash chinwag to treat yourself, a friend, or loved one this holiday season. Welcome, Mr. Ken Burns. Thank you, guys. So we, I know that the buffalo is what uh, yeah. you, you have up next. It's a story that I don't know much about. Well, well, it's, you know, we just, most of our history is just this kind of superficial conventional wisdom. And we say extermination of the buffalo, but we've been wanting for 30 years to do a, um, a story about how this extraordinary animal that numbered in the tens of millions could go down to fewer than a thousand, most of which were in zoos or or pens, and only maybe 20 or 40 or 60, we don't know, wild and free in a place like Yellowstone or in other places where we hadn't gotten to them, and why that slaughter happened. And it's a biography of an animal, but of course it is also the story of the 12,000-year relationship between native peoples and oh. an animal at the center of their physical existence, meaning they used every everything from the tail to the the snout and even the snort in their rituals, but central to their creation stories, to their religion, to their spirituality. And then all of a sudden this is severed uh, quite consciously through 
first market pressures. They want the tongs, they want the hides to run the leather belts in a post-Civil War industrial revolution. Really? Is that what the hides principally were for in the first place? Yeah, to drive the belts of all of the machines, the looms, the various stuff. Leather was the fifth largest industry in the United States uh, at that time. And then when they became scarcer and scarcer because we were slaughtering them by the millions, leaving their carcasses 800 pounds of meat, we were then after the heads for the bar, the saloon, the the trophy room. And then the bones have actually become valuable, more valuable than anything ground up for the chemical industry. But along the way, people began to realize we kill the buffalo, we also kill the Indian. We're making them docile. And while it's not articulate, it's not published policy, it is articulated uh-huh. all the way around. Even TR says, and yeah. you read him for this film, that it's sort of sad that we're going to lose the buffalo, but it's kind of necessary if we're going to handle our Indian problem. It's a tragedy uh, of of the highest proportion. In fact, the slaughter of animals in the Great Plains in the mid-19th century is the greatest slaughter of wildlife in the history of our planet, wow. to which you add the buffalo is central, but there's also elk and grizzlies and coyotes and wolves, and nothing ever has taken place like that before or after in the history of our planet, man-made slaughter of of animals. So the once the American Serengeti, this loud, cacophonous place of all this flora and fauna, is now a kind of monoculture with a silence that you know, is begging yeah. to be refilled up again. And so I think the question our film sort of asks at the end of the second episode is, isn't this the end of a second act in which we've saved the buffalo? That's fine. It's a zoo animal. It's going to be protected. There's a few hundred thousand of them. But don't we want the buffalo back roaming wild and free? And do we have the courage uh-huh. to create ecosystems large enough to tolerate that? It's it's That's sort of what the wither from here we go. The film is beautiful, just like all your work is, and and the story of exploitation is really horrifying. But the 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 film put this terrible tension in my head too between the the reciprocity that Native Americans have with nature. At one point, one of the guys says the buffalo is like my brother. Yes, and then but then there's the and that's a really amazing relationship with nature because the nature has purpose. And you're in a in a purposive relationship with it, and then it's in tension with my sort of scientific brain, which is sort of Darwinian, that says there is no purpose in nature. We're just species, you know, competing with with each other, and sometimes there's losers, and sometimes there's winners. And this and, is sort of meant to. It's just what yeah, happens. Yeah, and so I just wonder if you. I, it's not like you can answer this, but I'm just telling you what what it, what effect it had on me. It's it, and that that tension is something that we're dealing with, because like you said, these ecology problems, you could go back to indigenous approaches. On the other hand, there's all the advances of science and antibiotics and technology, yep. and we're just sort of in between there right now. It seems. Well, it does not necessarily preclude that Native Americans can't participate in that other thing. Right. Uh, we tend to freeze them at our own and their peril in some sort of primitive state. And in fact, the film is populated uh, almost a half by wow. Native American speakers, some of whom are scholars and scientists, biologists and historians who are very much part of that. So you're, I, I think in some ways we have to sort of disabuse ourselves of that sense that's still, and, and this is why I've, I've wanted to do this film for decades, and we waited long enough, I hope, to become better filmmakers, but I think also to be able to stop entertaining other points of view from my point of view. That is yeah. to say, something that is paternalistic or even patronizing, and rather seed over to them the idea that, you know, these are two different v- v- visions of how man interacts with the the world. And they aren't mutually exclusive, but we have seen what has happened with one version of it, that we are the dominant species. We're going to do what we want. Manifest Destiny has given us this continent, and we just ignore the fact that there are 300 other separate, distinct nations within that area that we displace and roll over. And there's cultures, you know, Kiowas and Comanches may be as different as, say, the British are from the French. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about a 
single native sensibility. We're right. talking about lots of very sophisticated cultures, some of which have huge cities we know in the Americas, and some of us left uh, extraordinary things. So it's it's really, it's an interesting thing. I think that maybe you might agree that the very nature of a binary thing does not exist in nature. That what mm. we do in our computer world, it has to be a one or a zero, or uh -huh. we can't talk to each other. Uh, in a media culture that's relatively superficial, uh, everything has to be binary, red state, blue state, gay, mm. straight, young, old, rich, poor, black, white, male, female. But in fact, there's nothing binary. And so I think what yeah. we, we had to privilege of doing is sort of letting go of some of that dialectic in favor of something in which, you know, George Horsecapture Jr., who is a member of an obscure tribe in north central Montana on the Fort Belknap Reservation, says, my cattle, my land. I mean, all of a sudden, all of the prerogatives of centuries of thinking about property have to actually be questioned, if not fall away temporarily. And I like the way that the native voices undercut a kind of certainty of the Western stuff. And just yeah. to put a finest point on it, Wallace Stegner says in our opening of our second episode, he said, man is the most dangerous species on earth and every other species, including the earth itself, has reason to fear him. But man is also the only species that if he wants to save something, can. can. Actually fix a so, problem. Nice. So, so we're yeah. on the horns of a dilemma in which sometimes we just have to sort of set aside the simplistic binary in favor of a much richer, I would suggest, and complex, nuanced view of mm -hmm. things. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's helpful. I'm amazed, but the simple sort of like mechanics of how this happened are kind of beyond me. There's a great book called Butcher's Crossing. Have you ever read Butcher's not, Crossing? I know Steve? about it. I have not read have it. Have you ever read this book? No, um, I Steve, it's, it's, it's great because it's about a kind of Harvard-educated kind of East Coast kind of uh, Brahmin guy who to kind of the, the the thing to do was to kind of hit the road and go out west and join a buffalo hunting party. Right. And it was right. kind of like this was this kind of slumming and I'm gonna do go do this crazy thing. And it and I mean and it's bananas and he ends up with these psychopaths who are out there just slaughtering these things. It, it was it was posited as kind of like just big game hunting, but you could make money selling the skins or it's it's it was, it, it's a complicated set and overlapping set of all of those things and more, Paul. For centuries there had been European contact and there had been trade in which the buffalo was not just the sustainable part of each community's stuff, but something you could trade for and with other people. The encroachment of particularly American life is pushing the buffalo from the East Coast. I mean, there are ordinances in Georgia in the mid-1700s saying, don't kill the buffalo. They were all the way practically coast to coast. You've heard of buffalo in New York, yeah. Yes. Um, so so the, James, the Jamestown the Jamestown people go up the Potomac where Washington, D.C. is and remark on a herd there. Uh, when Davy Crockett goes through the Cumberland Gap, he's following a buffalo trace. So there's pressures on the buffalo and the and Indian uh, received histories and oral histories. There's talks when the buffalo kind of tend to disappear a little bit and they think it's human hubris that's done this. And so their rituals are, are designed to sort of say, we are not above you, we are equal to you and please come back. So we know that there were, must have been some pressures through trade with Canadians, French Canadians, and English later on, and, and Spanish. The Spanish release, you know, there's a Pueblo uprising in the 1680s. Which is an amazingly little known It's one of the great moments. That there had been in North America a version of the horse code, the Eohippus, which went extinct. And then the Spanish, through this uprising, the Pueblo uprising, all these horses are are released, and all of a sudden, these Plains Indians, nomadic Plains Indians that travel with Travois pulled by dogs, he can't go anywhere, where the entire effort of the entire tribe is focused on just killing a couple of buffalo to survive that month or saving enough to survive the year, suddenly are become some of the greatest equestrians. So ever. the horse and becomes this the horse becomes this amazing technological leap. Change change sort of, agent. Yeah. And lots of tribes abandon even agricultural ways. One man can kill enough buffalo for the month in, in one day. Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries? 
or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod. beginning of the 19th century, what may have been 60 or 70 million, we have no way of knowing Buffalo, is around 30 or 35 million. They're still blowing Meriwether Lewis's minds, William Clark's <laughs> minds, when they go through it. And so after the beaver uh, frenzy of the early decades of the, of the 19th century. <laughs> Good old beaver frenzy. That's sure. how Wisconsin <laughs> got on the map. <laughs> and and so. Oregon. And Oregon. This was just beaver pelt craze. Yeah, and then they ran out and then fashions changed. But buffalo tongues were first something. And then hides always had some value. It wasn't until the post-Civil War when the Industrial Revolution gave this incredible impetus to go out there. So you've had in the early part of the 19th century, the sort of gentleman hunters. They're sort of gentleman Uh quotes. Sir Sir, Sir, Gore from Ireland comes and kills so many people so wantonly that the Indians just come to him and say, you put down your rifles and leave or we will make you leave because it's yeah. just so wanted. But to. what happens is when, <laughs> when the demands for the hides become so great post-Civil War, then the hide hunters, it's a real industrial pursuit. People are going out, able to make in a month what you'd make in a year as a, as a blue-collar workman back home. And they are just a frenzy in the central and the southern and then, then the northern plains depending on how far the railroad had gotten. And Uh treaties like Fort Laramie and and others are demarcating places where they promise not to go. But as soon as they, they... they kill right. all the buffalo north of the Arkansas River, for example. They go to Fort Dodge and they say, there's lots of buffalo on the south side. And he said, well, you're buffalo hunters. I go where the buffalo are, which is in direct violation of the treaty. And of course, they go there. And then all that does is make the tribes angrier. They fight back a little bit. They're defeated. And most are then shuffled into reservations in what was then called Indian Territories, now Oklahoma. And so it's just sad. And then it moves North broken treaties too. Yeah. It's, it's just, just a one chain of broken, broken treaties. Treaty after another. And then, of course, once you set up a reservation, right, which is you know, admittedly not the old homeland, but it's significant amount of space and not enough. It's still a sort of a, a yeah. horrific cultural, uh, you know, death. But then the Dawes Allotment Act at the end of the 19th century says, oh, we're going to do this really big favor. We're going to give you 125 acres of farmland. We're going to give you 350 acres, whatever it is, of ranch land. And then, oh, by the way, we'll give it each a family. Then we're going to take the rest and, and give it away to white settlers who are there. And a lot of this has to do with there's oil or there's gas or there's gold or there's uranium or there's silver, all this stuff. And so even the reservations are diminished by this frenzy to just go against it. And it still is that thing, is that you aren't really there. We've never seen you. You don't exist. It's our destiny to or spread this continent, manifest destiny. And and just you just bulldoze, you know, hundreds of cultures out of the way. One of the things that Paul and I uh, talk about uh, quite a, a lot is what is history? And we thought you're the guy on this. And as you're telling this story, I'm thinking uh, from the point of view of history, there's a kind of moral vision. And when one of the things you were just describing, like whether it's beaver pelts or it's uh, the hides of the buffalo is it seems like shit got really bad when it entered into a global economy. And I'm just wondering, That's does that lead yeah. you to think that there was some way in which we could have kept more local economies. You know, Americans could have said no to, the, the, you know, sending pelts to France and just said, let's just keep this. You see what I'm driving huh. at? Like, yeah, would an, that have To helped? that end, there's an interesting quotation in, in the show about, I think it's a guy named Lord James Bryce. Because it goes to what you're saying too, Steve, that there's this, the acceleration of kind of the system of of this grab for everything. Yeah. He says, you're doing it all too fast. Yes. To serve know, Paul, a larger purp- to purpose that's too big, and you're doing in a 
incredibly compressed amount of time, which taken the rest of the world mm -hmm. centuries and centuries. Oh. He's 50 years after de Tocqueville. I've used this quote now in three films. It begins our second episode. He's basically saying, what, what's Is it always Derek hate? Jacobi doing it? Yeah, Derek yeah. <laughs> what, why, why this haste? You know, we have cities bigger than yeah. yours, and we're still not happy. And he's asking Americans to go back to that moment where the, he says they entered this silent Eden. Well, it wasn't silent, and it wasn't unpopulated, and that's a little bit part of the problem. And I think, Steve, to your point, I'm not yeah. sure how to answer that very well because it's first of all kind of counterfactual. The Indians did want stuff in return and got yeah. things like weapons, blankets, uh -huh. stuff that they did. So there was a trade. It's just the industrial nature of it brought the buffalo to the extinction and it had this extra added advantage in quotes that it would also, you know, corral the Indians in a way that our policy wanted them to be mm -hmm. corralled. One of the moments in the film in the second episode is in 1913, we come out with an Indian head nickel. We know uh -huh. it's modeled on a certain Indian on the back is a is is a buffalo and it's modeled on a buffalo who as soon as the sculptor is done is sent off to the meatpacking district oh, in Manhattan oh, and, and, and parted out. But it's but it also seems to it was me, a buffalo in his it was in a zoo. Yeah. And it was, it, was, it was in captivity. Yeah, or in somebody's collection. And then it got it got slaughtered. But you think about it, that we're beginning to romanticize as the symbol yeah. of us, yeah. the yeah. two entities, the native people and the buffalo, and we're beginning to fetishize, you could say, these yeah. beings that we have spent the better part of the last hundred years trying to exterminate. And so that brings George Horsecapture Jr. of the Anahi tribe in North Central Montana to say, I just have to wonder, why is it you destroy the things you love? So I'm not yeah. sure, Steve, there's an yeah. answer to the cultural, anthropological, capitalistic uh, question that you've asked only because it's also counterfactual. What if the South had won the Civil War? Well, right, Here's right. The exactly. Yeah. They, they <laughs> did. They did. Yeah, the I, I was about to say they the may have. The Confederates, <laughs> the Confederates <laughs> Army never disbanded. They may um, have. They certainly won the peace and they wrote the history counter yeah. to what Churchill but said. That's, that's super interesting to me is – the romanticizing of a narrative carrying a yeah. that's super interesting to yeah. me. And and yes. it happens everywhere. And it's yeah, what so, history seems to be, or well, it seems to be I mean, the moral overlay, to go back to your original observation, Steve, there's no moral. Uh, you know, history is everything before this moment. Storytelling is superimposing narrative frames that may mm -hmm. involve moralism. It may involve just the facts, ma'am, you know, Sergeant Friday. It may uh, succumb to particular fashions of historiography, which since the dropping of the atom bomb has been from Freudian to Marxist economic determinist to symbolism uh -huh. to deconstruction to queer studies to Afrocentrism to whatever it is. All of them uh -huh. are particular fashions of how you may do it if you've rejected narrative, but it's still the laws of narrative apply in all of those cases. So there's lots of different ways. One way is to go back. I, I you know, people always say history repeats itself. It never has ever. No event has happened twice. People say you're condemned to repeat what you don't remember. Uh -huh. <laughs> you're like, Lovely no. thought, Bullshit. often it should, just doesn't happen. People, Mark, human uh, beings Mark, will do that. Human beings will do that. But not history. <laughs> Mark, Mark Twain is supposed to say that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, which is <laughs> yeah, if, he, yeah. if he didn't see it, it's perfect. I'll go back even farther to a perhaps more reputable source, which is the Old Testament. And that is in, in, in Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes, they say, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. And that tells me that it doesn't repeat itself, but human nature doesn't change. The same uh -huh. sort of you know, same sort of qualities of greed and generosity, of vice and virtue, of whatever pairing yeah. you want to do, are always superimposing itself True. over the seemingly random chaos of events. And I say seemingly because we may not be perceptibly adequate enough to understand larger patterns. You know, patterns, the, atom, yeah. the atom and the solar system share 
a really remarkably similar architecture. So what are we missing? In any case, what we do when I make films is we have our, our blinders on, we're looking, we're trying to tell the story. It's really difficult. Right. And when we get up, we realize the extent to which it's rhyming in the present. And there isn't a, a, a film that I haven't gone out on the road where the stump speech is, what if I told you this, this, and this, all sounding exactly like what's happening now. I'll give you guys a test. This yeah. is a film that I made a, a dozen years ago. It says, what if I told you I'd been making a film about right-wing single-issue campaigns that metastasized with horrible unintended consequences? It was about the demonization of recent immigrant groups. It was about oh, about uh, unbelievable partisan politics in presidential elections and a whole sense that a group of people felt they'd lost control of their country and wanted to take it back. This film came out at the middle of the Tea Party, as the Tea Party was ascending. Oh, uh -huh. And people say, oh, you're talking about now. As in every film I've ever done, yeah. if I do it that right. way, is talking about now. This mm -hmm. was about prohibition. And people wow. go, what? Uh -huh. oh, Sing yeah. Single-issue <laughs> political campaign that metastasized <laughs> right. with horrible unintended right. consequences, demonization of immigrant groups, and the progressives joined with the conservatives because <laughs> oh, you thought <laughs> you could end, you could legislate out an evil, and we created... Uh, an amendment to the Constitution, the only amendment that limited human rights, right? Whereas yeah. all of them that weren't mechanical had sure. had, uh, had of expanding course expanded them. You know, so so I could do that any film uh, to do that sort of set of stuff, and you go, oh my god, that is about the moment. Like I'll just do one other for you, uh, just as the parlor trick. Um, <laughs> Vietnam film. <laughs> What if it comes out in 2017, Trump has been president for seven or eight months. What if I told you I, may, I just made a film about mass demonstrations taking place across the country against the current administration? A white, a white House obsessed with, in disarray, obsessed with leaks, a president certain that the, the, that the press was lying about him. Huge, big document drops of stolen classified material that destabilized the political Water equation. Gates. And that, and that, and that, yeah, um, a little, uh, that a political party had reached out to a foreign power to affect oh, yeah, the national election. Amazing. Right? Amazing. Now, all yeah. of these yes. things were true Crazy. when I began yeah. work on the film about Vietnam in December of 2006. All of them were true when we locked the picture in December of 2015, a month before the Iowa caucuses out of which Donald Trump was not supposed to emerge. Uh -huh. And so you begin to say that human nature does not change or what it's it does, it changes. Yeah. And so it's always there with all of these, you know, examples of, you know, in the midst of, of of bad stuff, somebody comes and makes a gesture. Ninety three, some knucklehead throws a rock through the uh, picture window of a Jewish family in Billings, Montana, that's displaying a menorah. The Billings newspaper prints a full page picture of a menorah, and thousands of Christian families put this picture of a menorah up. Uh -huh. Stuff like that uh -huh. happens too. Yeah, so that right. within Within the Buffalo story, you begin to see human beings, Charlie Goodnight, take one example in the panhandle of Texas. He's an Indian fighter, an Indian killer, a Buffalo killer, and a rancher. Right. He hates Buffalo. Right. And Big he Texas migrates. Rancher. So he starts a, a herd and he gets better, gets a bigger and bigger herd. He befriends some of the Indians he was fighting and he goes farther and farther away. So the end of his life, he's dealing with Quanta Parker, the great Comanche leader, and he's making films about his buffalo herd and the way it really was. And so he makes a long distance. TR goes a little bit of the way. He becomes a conservation president, still presumes that Native Americans are savages, I guess. Yeah. Um, the friend who guides him, George Bird Grinnell, is the great hero of it. So, And there's lots of people who save the buffalo for the wrong reasons. They're eugenicists. They're white supremacists. Uh, they're nationalists. A lot of people in the early uh, national so they're using, state, they're bringing it back because it's an emblem of this great past. Exactly. <laughs> we killed uh, all of them, but it's an emblem of this yes. idea we uh, had in the first well, place. Well, it's the Viet Remember the guy who said, you know, we destroyed the village in order to save it in Vietnam. Yeah. Vietnam. You know, right. 
What about what about Buffalo Bill? I know, I'm just curious. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, or I don't know much about Buffalo Bill. Yeah, William, I don't know much William, about Buffalo William Bill. William F. Cody is hired by the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, I think it was, to go out and kill Buffalo to feed the workers laying track, right? And that, in the beginning, yeah. there was, the slaughter was not as industrialized. So he killed 4,000-plus Buffalo and got the nickname Buffalo Bill. And oh. then, of course, he becomes part of this romance of the West, of which yeah. he's more than happy to promote and put himself at the center of it. He goes and does a vaudeville show. The stage isn't big enough. He then creates this big <laughs> outdoor extravaganza, so which American. in three hours he goes <laughs> no, out and he amazing. does it. But, but yeah. what, he needs, what he needs are real Native Americans. He brings Sitting Bull in. Sitting Crazy. Bull play, play, yeah. yeah, Sitting Bull's Sitting there Bull for a while. himself. Sitting Bull's playing, playing himself. himself in this thing. He's got Buffalo <laughs> who he can't kill, right? And so he becomes a preserver of Buffalo. He's got one right. of the large uh, uh, highs, uh, herds of them. And then, you know, Sitting Bull's like, after a while, he says, I can't do this anymore. I don't understand in a city as rich as New York why there are beggars and hobos out there. And he gives most of his pay away to newsboys and and hobos and then take goes home to the rest and buys lavish feats for his friends. He just doesn't get the dynamic dynamics of capitalism. He doesn't understand why you don't take care of everybody in your tribe Uh, from the disabled or the mentally ill or to the poor or whatever. You have a kind of equality in a Native American existence. And so he's, so Buffalo Bill actually goes a long way to helping. And it maybe is, I, I think that Buffalo head nickel for all the absurdity of it, is also a prick of conscience. Mm, And I think uh as we begin to romanticize a West that we fear has disappeared, the two things that emerge of that West are the Native Americans who have a kind of purity in the buffalo, which is the largest land mammal, this magnificent beast. We should talk about it. It seems, I just saw a buffalo a few weeks ago in a herd in New Hampshire, and they have um, you look in their eyes and you can see all their, their yeah. lives. In fact, Paul, there was in the beginning of the 20th century a, a big herd in New Hampshire that's long uh-huh. gone, but it's one of the guys that was the caretaker helps form the National Bison Society and, and Theodore Roosevelt, the president, the honorary president. There's lots of, there's lots of odd places where the buffalo are being saved. And the great irony is, of course, that when TR creates the Wichita Mountains Refuge, Wildlife Refuge in Oklahoma, near where the Kiowa believe, right where the Kiowa believe, Buffalo came out of what is now called Mount Scott, the highest prominence there, and, and basically gave themselves as a gift to the Kiowa and to the Indian people. They didn't have any Buffalo to seed this stock. So where did they get it from? The Bronx Zoo. So these oh, buffalo right. are loaded onto cattle cars at the at the Fordham train station, and they go out west to their new old home. Wow. And they are the seed of the first wildlife That's refuge it. that he has set aside. So you cannot make this stuff up. And I think the question about the about morality and stuff is all in. How is it that you tell the story? Who is it telling the story? What is the perspective of the story? What do you choose to include? What do you leave out? Because storytelling is editing. Honey, how was your day is not, I back slowly down the driveway, (laughs) avoiding (laughs) the garbage can (laughs) and the curb. Unless somebody somebody Tebow shows you, you you have no idea what a son of a bitch my boss is, right? That's that's (laughs) the way you do it. So we're we're editing, we're all editing (laughs) human experience. I became. Well, I took my kid to the Gettysburg Battlefield uh, maybe thirteen years ago, and Love I have not really been to many of these battlefields. I'm fascinated by the whole idea of the memorialization of that yeah. war and those battlefields. Reenactments. What I found most fascinating was the was the private company that owns Gettysburg and has formed. And I thought this is fascinating to watch this story being told. It was it was amazing. It was the first time I felt so viscerally this idea of like who gets to tell the story? How are you going to tell the story? How are you going to shape the story? And it was it's it's. I mean, the federal government does it with a lot of those places. But so, this, but with Getty, this private company. No, Gettysburg actually is owned by you and me. 
and the monuments are ours, the property is ours, but inevitably there are concessionaires who have stuff yes. to do with tours, who have yes. stuff to do with interpretation. The but the actual, the actual, no. the actual visitor's center has people who run the bookstore and run the food concessions, but we curate the exhibitions, ah. we, the American people curate. But it is an interesting thing that from the very beginning of the park idea, there was always intention with this notion of exploitation and commercialization. When we're trying to save something, people are like, I get it. I'll save it for you. you know? <laughs> it'll only cost you one dollar and fifty cents to get in. <laughs> what is there's an interesting thing though when you it was really cool in the documentary when you see that Char Charlie Goodnight's films that yes. he made and you see him as an old man and you see these yeah. buffalo running down. But the really interesting thing with the West that's fascinating to me is the connection between the development of film and then the kind of creation of Hollywood and the West. That's uh, right. Did you know this, Steve, that one of the Dalton brothers I can't remember which one of them was in early westerns being no, made. And he was one that. of the notorious outlaws, but oh, he moved right? to like he moved to Los Angeles and he became an actor. And, <laughs> but it's interesting <laughs> that the romanticization, <laughs> the kind of building <laughs> of narrative, collides yeah, all, with the west. Yeah. And a lot of those early actors were cowboys, quote unquote. That's but a lot right. of them were, and a lot of the guys working on the films were cowboys. They were horse wranglers, and they could also then build a set. They could take a set down. They could move shit around. Oh yeah. And it's really interesting the overlap with Hollywood and western. I decided what, when I was 12 years old that I was going to become a filmmaker. And that, to me, in my mind, meant a Hollywood filmmaker. And that meant John Ford or Alfred Hitchcock uh -huh. or Howard, Howard Hawks. This is like 1965. I just saw my dad cry in a movie. And I said, I want to be a filmmaker. And I just got <laughs> my, he hadn't, my mom had just died. He hadn't cried at her 10-year wow. illness, hadn't died at, when, at her death, hadn't died at her sad funeral. But here he was crying at a movie, Odd Man Out, by Sir Carol Reed about oh, the Irish troubles, James movie. Mason. Mm. And I thought, yeah. uh, that's what I want to be. But, wow. you know, Ford said, when faced with the factor of the legend, print the legend. I went the other way. I ended up going to Hampshire College and all my teachers were social documentary, <laughs> still photographers and, and, and filmmakers. And that made the difference. And so it's so interesting, that tension, Paul, that you described. There's a wonderful story in the 19th century where Kit Carson has become a hero in his own lifetime, embellished right. by these, di these dime no novels, right? And he's this relatively short guy, like five feet. And somebody comes up to <laughs> him in Tucson and says, looks, look, you know, looks at him. He said, are you Kit Carson? He goes, I am. And the guy who's been steeped in all the novels looks up and down this guy and he goes, no, you're not. Right. That's exactly yeah. the Dalton's yeah. like who does, who, you know, we basically created a, a West of mythology that didn't really exist. It was no, not no. populated with any black cowboys, of which there were a lot. The exodusters yeah. who went out after the Civil War and 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 tried to escape the you know specific gravity of Jim Crow and the tyranny of the old plantation system that wasn't going to give itself up despite Appomattox. You know, there's there's a funny way in which we've told these comforting lies, bromides, to ourselves about who we are and where we've been when the when the truer story is complicated and messy, but much more interesting. I have a neon yeah. sign in my editing room and it says it's complicated. There's not a filmmaker in the world yeah. that if the scene is working, you don't want to touch it. But that's ridiculous. You wanna to touch it. Yeah. You wanna yeah. mess with it. You wanna yeah. open it up and find out that there's undertow that those placid waters just have unbelievable riptides, you know? So it, it's, you know, it's but, Jefferson but the, owning slaves. The, the thing that, um, like, troubles me about history, too, is just what you're saying here is that 99% of us never get a story. We never get a mythology. Right. Like, you, you, I saw this film you did. It was just a beautiful film about this guy who drives his car from the from San Francisco to the uh, Horatio is his name. And he's Horatio an amazing Nelson character. Jackson. Yeah, yeah. It's an ama <laughs> he's an amazing character. I never heard of him. He's just a giant of a man. And yet there's tens of thousands of these guys yeah. at that time, and they've all slipped away. Just, yeah. we're all dust in the wind, man. What's, what's the- Well, that's, that's the interesting <laughs> thing. Are, man. 
The, the social critic Lewis Mumford said each generation rediscovers and reexamines that part of the past that gives its present new meaning and new possibilities. And so I think that's a really important part of, of, of the process of history. You know, I'm glad I waited 40 years to do Vietnam because 10 years afterwards, it'd be the signal yeah. of our defeat because we were in the middle of a recession and Japan was ascended. Uh -huh. 20 years after, we it would be nothing mm. because we were in the mm. largest peacetime economy and uh, we'd won the first Gulf War. 30 years afterwards, you know, we're bogged down in Afghanistan and Iraq in the same way of Vietnam. And so you, you just want to get certain perspectives. And what you definitely don't want to do is just do it top down. American history is not just a sequence of presidential administrations right. uh, punctuated by wars. And right. so when you try to have, you don't want to throw that out either because that's that revisionism is, is also foolish and unnecessary. You want to try to have a bottom up that meets a top down in which you can celebrate so-called ordinary lives. You discover very yeah. instantly that there's nobody ordinary. And that's what right. most of our work, even when we're doing the Roosevelt's, it's also trying to humanize people who have become so bold-faced that they resist yeah. anything but characterization. So, yeah. Speaking of crazy road trips, are you aware that like after he was president, shortly after he was president, Truman just like jumped in the car and took this crazy like cross country drive with his wife. Oh, really? Yeah. And like, yeah, just alone. And did you know about this guy? <laughs> yes, like, yeah. It's so true. It's so Truman esque. I mean, it was just hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, literally, he just got in the car and was going to diners and hanging out and just like awesome. literally just driving cross country. Eleanor did the same thing during as first lady with uh, Lorraine, her friend Lorena Hickok, and they went all all over That's New great. England and the Gaspé Peninsula in Canada, and every you know the Secret Service was ditched and they were given a <laughs> they were given a pistol, but they took no ammunition. <laughs> they just they were just two two gals out for a drive. <laughs> now, I, this is probably this is this is territory that we get into sometimes. On uh, a little while back, you talked about not being able to see the patterns and things. Yeah. So I'm curious. Like we live in this age of conspiratorial thinking. Not that we have never. I think we've always lived in, a, in an age of conspiratorial thinking. Yes, always, thinking. always. Yeah. There's a definite storytelling pattern-seeking, mm. pattern-finding brain yes. at work there. Those conspiracies are born out of the fact that some things defy complete and easy explanation. Right. And we want things to, we want to have the gated communities to protect us from everything. And when they don't, because the inevitable vicissitudes that visit other human beings will eventually visit us. None of us get out of here alive. Conspiracy is a default setting for a lot yeah. of people. And a lot of it is just like, you look at Lee Harvey Oswald and you look at Kennedy's way up here, Lee Harvey Oswald seems so small. You have How is to that make, possible? You, it yeah. can't be possible. Uh, Sir, yeah. Sir, no, it has to be this way. James Earl, wait, no, it's gotta be that. And so, you kind know, there is- Kind of thinking. Yeah. That that is that is oddly, and I've said it's. I mean, this is my half-ass theory that it's it's, you know, there's 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 this enormous amount of information hitting people so fast that it's having the same effect as too little information that you couldn't get a hold of That's centuries correct. ago, and it's like so, so your mind just starts speculating like insanely. It's true. It's a, it's you have the to same make thing. connections. Yeah. Yes, right. And and this, it, what, what happens, the byproduct is superstition. We think of it in a European thing that are beset and imprisoned by wives' tales and, and certainties about things that don't happen because we don't have a scientific basis. Well, now we do, but we have a tsunami of information. And so the default yeah. position is, of course, to create uh, conspiracies or to create this stuff. And the idea that you could have, you know, as his own person said, the freest and fairest election in the last president cycle, and that you could have an extraordinary number, high percentage of the people in that party believing that it was stolen still to this day, begins yeah. to tell you of, of the tenacity of this kind of willful ignorance. I mean, it is better to believe in a value system if it doesn't have too many problems with it. It's certain, right? And we're looking for certainty. Yeah. As if it's certain. a hunger for a satisfying narrative. There's like a definite that's human right. need for oh, like a I think good that's plot. A, that's that a yeah. good. That's a good way. You know what I mean? It's like that's a, there's a, it's an actual human need. I think that it's like I yeah. need a good plot. I need a good yep. story. I need something that's going to end 
not just happy ending, but end satisfyingly somehow, you know? And it's uh, yeah, like, it's the I, dark I side the of the imagination point. too. That's like, right. You know, That's right. And it's also, with as much as it seems bonkers, it's also ordered. It has pattern to it. Yeah. When we cannot, in order to be yeah. a human being, I don't want to even say a modern human being, in order to be a, a, a human being, you have to tolerate that contradiction. You have to tolerate the inevitable undertow. You have to understand, as Wynton Marsalis said to me in jazz, sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. Oh, and, nice. and, and you've got to be able to um uh that's hard reconcile yeah. hard. these things it's it's, it's, it's nigh impossible and i think for many of us the default position is sort of shake your head and go hey jake it's chinatown there's just an unexplainable <laughs> aspect to this right? right um but it's but it's hard for a lot of people who want things well ordered to to understand the chaos and that's why the othering of people is that is a default position too. We make Jews bad. We make immigrants bad. We make a people that we've never met bad because we've been told they're bad. When, you know, as I've said, you know, there's, there's, I've made films about the U S but I've made films about us. And what I learned is there's no them. There's only us. And if anybody tells you there's a them, just walk away because yeah. it's just not true. I'm inclined to think that there aren't, like conspiracy thinkers and then like rationalists. It's more like there's better and worse conspiracy theories. Some of them can be, you know what I mean? Like, because you could argue, what are you doing? You're looking at patterns and appearances and then you're trying to draw inferences about what's behind those appearances. And then you end up with stuff like Pizzagate and shit like that. But also like religion is kind of a good, healthy conspiracy. There's order in nature. Then somebody goes, hey, an invisible guy made all this. And you're like, okay. <laughs> That's cool. You know, I mean, like, it's not like you get to the bedrock of reason and then people are just, just scientists. It's so, it's so much more complicated. The narratives are so like much. Competing. I mean, even, even, even Einstein basically thought that the objective of science was to prove the existence of God. Yeah. Right. And almost all scientific yeah. stuff has to divorce itself from that. The other thing is that we presume that faith is certainty and that the opposite of faith is doubt, when in fact doubt is central to faith and certainty is the opposite yeah. of faith. Being certain is actually not to be open to the potential ability to see the mysteries that inevitably that openness has to throw up some doubt about whether that uh -huh. will actually ever happen. And so, so the I drama love those contradictions. You know, Interesting. So the drama yeah. of struggle is part of faith. The drama yeah. of yeah. saying, I, I I, will go through doubt, I will question things and come out somehow, somewhere that yeah, you know, I will keep an, going. There's yeah, an interesting, really you know, cool. C.S. Lewis is, you know, this incredible doubter, a scientist who basically makes a scientific proof for the existence of God. And Freud, who is this atheist, actually through his own personal superstitions and other things, kind of proves the you know the fallacy of that it's so it's so interesting <laughs> that that we have we're always you know you there was a uh, comic strip in the 40s that was popular with my father and I inherited a lot of the books and read them like a nerd in the 50s uh, called Pogo oh yeah uh, who's uh -huh. this, and the the most famous line from Pogo was we have met the enemy and he is us <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and that's from Pogo. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, didn't know that was Pogo, Pogo either. Well, <laughs> well, well Kelly. Well, Kelly. Well, and is Pogo like an aardvark or is he yeah, like, is he, he so, I don't know. I think so. so but it's sort of yeah. an indefinite animal figure. Right? Animal. Yes, he's a weird looking little critter. Are you yeah. a skeptical person? Do you consider yourself a skeptic of doing what you do? Uh, yeah. or you? Well, I think, well, you know, the biggest thing I am as an editor, I'm distilling that human stuff. So my job is to take it and trying to find the story in it. So skepticism uh -huh. is a part of that, but so yeah. is faith. Faith in process, faith in something bigger. I'm looking for a moment, as you are too in your work, where one and one equals three. Right, like uh, you can't. Yeah. The bridge, the bridge does not stand. The mystery if one is only one, and one is only two. But we always talk about the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. But we never say, okay, here are the sum of the parts. Here's the whole. What's that difference? And that, that I'm really curious about that. And that has spiritual or non-rational, not explanations, but relationships that you have to develop in the course yeah. of that. 
This was outstanding, sir. Yeah, this was thank so you. much fun. Yeah, I have not Good. had so much fun in so long. <laughs> really, That's really so great. Th thanks so much. Really Good. wonderful. Thanks so much, Ken. All you right, answered guys. some you gave me some great answers about history because I keep wondering about it, and those are fantastic. Thanks, Ken. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Amazing, amazing, amazing individual, that guy. Yeah, that was really great. And uh, smart. he we learned a lot, not just about buffaloes, but also about history. And that you've had cool. some kind of encounter with buffaloes, as I recall. I I was uh, I had I had a buffalo encounter. Thank you for asking, by the way, Steve. <laughs> uh, I had a buffalo encounter about. It must have been about thirty years ago now. I was driving cross country with a with a buddy of mine. We were driving from New York to Seattle. Which is a, a which is a good thing to do for anybody drive, who hasn't like driven coast to coast. Right? You can do oh. it pretty fast, but we actually we took a long time because we didn't have any time we had to be in Seattle. Oh, that's cool. I don't know. We got to kind of Minnesota, and we were like, "Yeah, fuck it." We were like, "We could," and we were going fast. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, the "Hell with it. We can Slow just down. Oh, screw it. I'm just gonna keep. Yeah, I'm just gonna <laughs> let's just start to wander." So we wandered all, all just started very American around. Total American. Yeah, and we experience. went down to Wyoming and Devil's Tower. We went to see Devil's Tower oh, and cool. Close Encounters of the Three Kind. Uh, oh, the third cool. kind. Yeah, I've never Rock seen it. Formation, but it looks amazing. It's cool. It doesn't look real. It looks kind of phony. <laughs> it looks. It looks. It looks kitschy. Speaking Where you're like making your mashed potatoes in the shape of that thing. <laughs> well, yeah, but well, that looks. Yeah, that's a more natural looking thing than the thing itself. I guess what the thing is is that it was a volcano. I think, and it, it was a core of of hardened molten lava or something, and the rest oh, of the volcano broke right? away from the outside of it, and you get this sort of like you get this thing. It's like a mold broke and left this perfectly weird column with these weird stripes down the sides of it. It's and really then erosion cool. and I just guess the, takes everything else away. I think so. And I guess the, the, the Native American legend is a bear sharpened its claws. Some oh, bear was sharpened totally its see claws. That. That makes, I think that's, that's really the cool. legend. Saw all these kinds of things. Mount Rushmore, by the way, too, looks totally yeah, bizarre. I've Have been you seen there. it? <laughs> It's, it's just, really weird. And it's super, it's, real, it's kind of like, it's really patriotic. I took my Chinese in-laws there. This was 10 years ago. And it it was like, we were standing there and they had the service members come up and we're like all tearing up as they play the, it's you know, Spangled Banner. It was really kind <laughs> yeah. of interesting. It was it's kind, I didn't think I was going to be moved thing. by it, but I yeah, was moved no, by it's, it. Striking. It's strange, but it's a little kitschy too. I mean, it's a little it is, like it's totally the whole kitschy, setup yes. is sort of yeah, it's a little kitschy, but it's but it's amazing. Then there's that there's that partially built. I don't know if they've ever finished the Crazy Horse Monument that's nearby there. It's which still. I don't think it's done. The, um, anyway, I got off. I got off track there. We were in <laughs> no, South that's Dakota. Right. It's a chinwag. <laughs> that's right. We were in Custer <laughs> State National Park, and we got a flat tire in my my secondhand Volkswagen jet. I got a flat tire. Right in the middle, right as a sort of partial uh, herd of buffalo were approaching to cross the road. And so we got out and we're doing this thing as these huge beasts just slowly started drifting by the car and stopping. While you're and changing the tire? Changing the tire, just like, I don't know how many of them, just dozens of them, sort of surrounding the car. Not particularly interested at all. Gigantic, bigger than the really? car. I mean, like, wow. yeah, like top overtopping the car, like their shoulders reaching up above the car, and this kind of scared? extraordinary the the fur. It was eerie. It was really eerie. eerie. It wasn't so much scary as it was uncanny feeling. Oh, yes. You know what I mean? Like there's those yeah, yeah. moments when you're in the water or something and you're like, is there a weird, is there a fish around me or something? <laughs> it's that like nature's real close to me and looking at me, untamed, yeah. un- unfiltered nature's just standing right there looking at me like a lot of them and big ones just but there was the way they kind of just slowly drifting past wow. them because they're just really cool. like just really cool and like he said too it's like they got these enormous brown eyes that are like 
really intense in their faces. And you can, it feels like there's somebody home. It's not like a fish. Yes. I, it's like their eyes look dead, you know, but with a mammal, <laughs> it looks say. like somebody's home. Totally. Well, I mean, you know, there's those horses you look at that you're like, well, this horse is about yeah. to talk. I mean, this, this horse is about to open his fucking mouth and start start talking to me. It's going to light up a talking cigar head. and like crack a beer and just start talking to me. Because when you see those horses like that, that are so intelligent, like that, it's amazing. But it was beautiful. It was, and I was, and I think I didn't realize that there were so many buffalo left at that time. And now there's even more because wow. it was 35 years ago whenever this happened. So it's good to know that there's more. That's anyway. awesome. That was my that was my special moment with uh well, that's with the a American good that's a good moment. Bison. I've never been that close to a buffalo, but uh, that yeah, sounds really it cool. exciting. It was very nice. Well, that was delightful with Mr. Ken Burns. Yes. And as always with you, Steve, it was a delight. And likewise, Paul. Yeah. To our listeners, we will we will sort of close as usual by saying wag on weirdos. Wag on weirdos. See ya. Chinwag is a production of Treefort Media and Touchy Feely Films, hosted and executive produced by Paul Giamatti and Stephen Asma. Executive producers for Treefort are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman. Dan Carey is executive producer for Touchy Feely. Our series producer is Rachel Whitley Bernstein. Original theme music by Luke Topp, with additional music by Via Mardot. Oscar Guido is our executive in charge of production. Tom Monahan is head of audio for Treefort. Animation created by Alex Sokol. Editing and mixing by Jeff Neal. Lastly, for more information, go to chinwagpod.fm and find us on Instagram or TikTok at chinwagpod or on Twitter at chinwag underscore pod. <laughs>